Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, February 4th, we're studying Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Jesus once again shows the authority and power of his word in Galilee by healing a centurion's servant from illness and by raising a widow's son from death. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Hill, let's talk context. We've come through six chapters of St. Luke now. What do we need to know about the evangelist and what he's been telling us up to this point? Right, today as we continue on in Luke chapter 7, we find ourselves examining two of Jesus' major miracles and very memorable miracles in Luke, as you'd mentioned, the healing of the centurion servant and the raising of the widow's son in Nain. Uh, Luke 7, of course, comes on the heels of Luke 6, where we hear Luke's sermon on the plain. This um, lines up a little bit with the way that Matthew uh, retells Jesus' sermon on the mount. And as you've spoken with your previous guests, of course, Jesus would have taught the same thing in many places. And now that Jesus has finished up his, his teaching, he is moving back to uh, a time of a ministry of healing. Uh, and we remember that his healing ministry is always moved by the compassion Jesus has for his creatures who are devastated by the effects of sin in the world. Here what we'll see with these um, two miracles taking place is a theme in Luke that's referred to oftentimes as a prophet Christology, where we look at Jesus Christ as, of course, prophet, priest, and king, that threefold office, and here that aspect of Jesus as the greatest prophet, the fulfillment of the office of the prophet comes through for us. Now, we might think, of course, Jesus as as prophet being more so the ministry of his his word or more of the Sermon on the Plain type of stuff. So why are we talking about that here with his ministry of healing? Well, part of the office of prophet in the Old Testament was indeed to perform miracles and deeds that would accompany the verbal teaching so there's always um, in the prophets the verbal teaching that comes from the Lord, and then oftentimes that extra blessing of miracles that are performed uh, to confirm that word that's come from the Lord. So especially the prophets of Elijah and Elisha come to mind, uh, whose ministries were marked by perhaps more of that type of activity than some of the other uh, preaching prophets. And so here we see Jesus coming on the heels of their ministry, and fulfilling and filling out that aspect of their ministry. This gets us to that idea of typology that is a phrase we throw around so often where you have a type and an anti-type just like a typewriter. Um, and to keep that straight, I, I usually get them backwards. The type is the thing that comes before in the Old Testament. The anti-type here is Christ. So Christ is the mold, and they, although they came before, they came in the mold of Christ who is who is yet to come. So we see that all fulfilled for us here in pretty uh, large fashion in these two miracles. So with with the miracles of Jesus and this pr- the idea for the prophet Christology, you, you mentioned the teaching, the miracles. Is there anything else within that prophet Christology that we should see Jesus fulfilling? 
Yeah, the other thing that we see in the prophet Christology really is the uh, motif of suffering, right? Uh, we remember especially Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah especially, the weeping prophet, who, because of the message he brings, bears the negative reaction of society and uh, the slings and arrows that they would um, lodge against God's prophets. And Jesus, of course, bears that in its fullness in his cross and passion. Uh, but we see that happening in other places, even throughout his ministry, as he's rejected in various places in various towns. But what we see here is Jesus is back in Capernaum today. Um, and this came to light for me as just we've been reading through Luke in the lectionary, that Capernaum is a place in Luke where we see them being very receptive to Jesus' miracles. Earlier in chapter 4, we have Jesus rejected in Nazareth, and then the second half of chapter 4 talks about Jesus going right back onto Capernaum where he's received in faith. So uh, we expect to see Jesus here in a place that's marked by those who are looking expectantly at Jesus, those who are um, open to his unfolding identity as the Messiah to begin to understand that and we'll see the, the people here as examples of faith in Christ as they begin to understand him to be who he really is. Yeah, that, that struck out there. That stuck out to me as well in the recent lectionary text, moving from that one part in Luke 4, where Jesus gives his inaugural sermon and he's rejected at Nazareth. And then in the next text, you find him in Capernaum and he is received with faith and he does those miracles there. And so, I mean, I suppose in that, in that regard, he doesn't do the miracles in Nazareth, but we shouldn't be surprised to see him do them here in Capernaum where there is this faith. Right. The other thing to remember about Capernaum is it is kind of the, the base of operations for Jesus' Galilean ministry. It's the place uh, from, from which uh, St. Peter uh, was raised and called to be a follower of Christ. So it's, uh, it's his home territory in a sense, even though it wasn't the home in which he grew up. It was an adopted home in a sense for Jesus and his ministry amongst the people who were ready to receive him. All right, so we've got two texts that occur in Capernaum. The first, as you mentioned, is the healing of a servant of a centurion. So let's go ahead and dig in. This is Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, him, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. That takes us through verse 10 of the text. We'll pause there. It's the healing of the centurion's servant. So we've talked a little bit about the setting. This is after Jesus' sermon on the plane. He's in Capernaum. And the next person we meet is a centurion. So what, what's a centurion, Pastor Hill? So a centurion is a military commander in uh, the Roman army. A centurion would have been in charge of 80 to 100 Roman soldiers. They get their name, of course. Uh, centurion is in century or, or a mark of 100 
which would have been about who was in their command. This particular centurion is one who has set himself apart, I suppose, from what the Jews would have normally expected of centurions. Remember, they're occupied by Rome and wouldn't have been naturally well-disposed one to the other. But here we see this centurion has um, a good, close relationship with the Jewish elders in Capernaum. Um, We also know that he seems to be one who is well-disposed to the faith that, uh, that the Jews held dear. He um, had helped build the synagogue for them in the town. He's, he's got friends there. And I think what we can get from this is that he would have been open, at least, to the worship of Yahweh. Now, whether he was a practitioner of the worship of Yahweh, I think would be a little bit of a bridge too far. And there would have been cultural pressure for him not to do that if he were to adopt the religion of the occupied land in which the Roman forces were, that probably would have been detrimental to his own career. So while he may not have been a Jewish convert, he certainly was open to what he was hearing in the word, uh, so much so that he was willing to be generous to that community. So a, a benefactor, it seems, of, of some sort. But in terms of how involved he would have been, say, at the synagogue that he helped to build, that's maybe uncertain, but open. He's, I think, he's. it seems he's heard the word, and he certainly has heard something about Jesus and recognizes in Jesus someone who can who can help him. Yeah, and there are people like that today, I think, too. People who look at what the church does or even what the church teaches, they understand it to a certain extent and are maybe even well disposed to it, but aren't quite all the way there yet. And, and I think we, we could look out for people like the centurion even today uh, who— who look kindly upon the fact that, say, our church is within a community and they recognize it as being um, helpful maybe for some social goal or something else. Um, we see the gap being closed here through what Jesus does for the centurion's son, moving him one step closer to faith. Yeah, I think we, we may have to keep talking about that one here because Jesus is going to commend the faith that the centurion has. So mm-hmm. the centurion, and I don't know the, 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 the correspondence you're trying to draw today, maybe it's not quite a one-to-one, but there is this, you know, there's this reality that people interact with the church in various ways, and we need to think about how we give them the fullness of who Jesus is. The centurion here, it, this is one of the hard things about the Gospels in general, is you meet these characters, if I can use that term. And and it's hard, you don't get a necessarily a, a full sense of what's going on in their in their hearts. You have to figure that out by their actions and by what Jesus says. This guy definitely has faith in Jesus. That is that is certain. What's going on beforehand and, and how he's interacting with the Jews there at the synagogue is maybe a little bit less certain, other than to say he's helped them out and is well thought of by them. And I think that's a I mean that's a pretty significant thing because oftentimes the, the Jews at Jesus' day didn't think all that highly of folks like Roman soldiers particularly, and then Gentiles in general. Absolutely. And, and I think we see that his first encounter with, with God is through the synagogue worship, through the Old Testament practice uh, of worship. But what closes the gap for the centurion is his encounter with Christ. So whereas we may have people who are favorably disposed to the church because they think they know what the church stands for, you know, perhaps... Um, uh, they may think that the church stands for a more traditional moral way of life that's passing away from society, and they may like that. Um, but they're not all on board with the church. But if, if Christ is the thing that closes the gap once he's seen clearly by the centurion, perhaps if we can show Christ clearly to these other people, 
uh, a similar thing might take place. Well, and I'm just thinking about the negative example of the Pharisees that we've seen in the Gospel of Luke. That, that was the primary thing that was happening before the Sermon on the Plain was over and over again. The Pharisees, who I, I think would be full on board with a, a very moral way of life, you know, even the, especially the old-fashioned moral way of life, and yet they couldn't grasp who Jesus was and, in fact, outright reject who Jesus is. The centurion, we're not told too much about his moral way of life. He is supporting the synagogue, but perhaps as a Roman, he would have been associated with some less moral practices. Mm -hmm. Yet, he does encounter Jesus here and recognizes in Jesus something very significant, if I can say at least that. He calls him Lord, which I I don't think we can just skip over that. You know, he calls him Lord. So he's, and Jesus says he's got faith. And that's, that's the difference. And that's really what, what counts with this centurion. And so, yeah, for, for folks today, maybe some people do see the church, this is the moral stronghold, but if they don't receive Christ, they've missed the boat like the Pharisees. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Pastor Hill. So that was, that was an interesting line of thought. Let's, let's see where, where do we need to go next in the text? The centurion heard about Jesus where, yeah, you help me forward. I, I was kind of going down that train of thought. Let's try to move back here to the text. Where, where else do we need to what else do we need to see here? Well, let's walk through the actions that take place in the text, but let's be mindful for who is involved, the characters that are going to emerge here, because this isn't just a simple centurion walks up to Christ and has right. a conversation with him type of thing. Um, there are more people involved in the process. So uh, what we see here is the the problem in the text, the issue at hand is the centurion has a servant and the servant is ill, ill to the point of death. So I think we should start with that aspect to, to see why does that matter to the centurion? Um, I think what we're seeing in the centurion is a above and beyond regard for his servant that might not have been exhibited by everyone in his position in his day and time. Um, a servant was there to serve the needs of his master, and the idea of a master taking a servant, um, a sacrificial servant position towards his the ones below him was not this common thing. I mean, that idea is really something that comes out of the teachings of Jesus that hadn't been incorporated into culture at this point yet. So he he has a compassion for his ill servant. He doesn't write him off. He doesn't say uh, that we'll just let him die and get a new one. He doesn't view him as some replaceable piece in his system, but as a uh, a brother, even in a sense, I don't want to push it too hard, but a brother in humanity, if nothing else, who is worthy of his compassion and care. So I think that that's something he sees him as a person rather than property, which gives us an insight into the the heart of the centurion. Sure. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think, and again, just to try to, we don't necessarily hear precisely what the centurion's thinking, but you do see in his actions that he has this compassion for his servant. And he's got a love for these these people of God, which again, how involved is he in their their synagogue worship? That's maybe left unsaid, but he certainly has a compassion for God's people and a desire to support them. And again, we don't want to say too much, but I do think that says something that he's he's the word of God is working on him already. And then when he sees Jesus, that clicks. So again, in into the text, you've got the centurion who loves his servant. And then he's he's got these friends, these elders of the Jews that end up going to Jesus, talking to him. Tell us a little bit about that, those folks in the text. Right. So he does not himself go to Christ. He sends elders of the Jews to Christ on his behalf. So he's able to summon them um, and speak of his concern. 
the elders of the Jews are an example of faith here too. The and these are the local elders of the Capernaum community. These are not Pharisees. Um, they they are willing to be a part of mediating between Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, and the centurion from Rome. So they're an example of faith, too, because they would have called him off of the idea of approaching Jesus if they, too, didn't believe that Christ could do something about the centurion servant's problem. But he takes a mediated approach to Jesus for two reasons. One is he is exhibiting a humility. He's not considering himself um, worthy to go speak to the Lord himself. And this is hard because um, he was a man of fairly high stature in society. So this would, you would expect the opposite, that he would feel as if he could march right in there and talk to Christ. But instead, there's a, there's a humbleness in his heart. Um, but also he is um, keeping up cultural standards too, where generally speaking, a Jewish rabbi may not have wanted to speak to a, you know, quote unquote, Gentile sinner in those days. So he is keeping a distance out of humility and respect for the cultural norms. And um, what we see is, is Christ is, uh, I guess we'd say, quite impressed by that, that attitude. Oh, yeah. He, he, I mean, he gives quite the commendation by the end of this text. Before we get too far into that, talk a little bit about what the elders who go to Jesus, what they say about this centurion. I mean, they have a lot of good things to say about him and, and say, hey, Jesus, this guy des- almost, that's what it sounds like, he deserves to have you answer the prayers, which, man, we've talked about this in confirmation recently here at Grace. Like, we don't deserve anything from God. What What's going on here with the way they approach Jesus? Yes, they do come up to him essentially saying he's a, a worthy applicant. They use the phrase worthy. He is worthy to have you do this for him, which really turns things upside down on how we think about daring to approach God in prayer. But again, they're not speaking of themselves being worthy for their um, request to be granted. They're they're bragging on him in a sense. Um, and the things that they say he's worthy for is the fact that he loves our nation. Our nation being the people of Israel, not uh, you know a political nation. He says that he built them the synagogue. So the things that they consider him worthy for are things that indicate. Uh, an open disposition to the worship of Yahweh. So I guess if you're going to be considered worthy, so to speak, for any reason, it's not on the basis of fame or fortune or power. It's on the basis of the things that indicated the the unfolding faith that he he exhibited. Sure. I mean, I, I think back to Genesis chapter 12, to the promise that the Lord made to Abram, about, you know, he says, I will bless those who bless you. And it seems that maybe yeah. that's what's going on here with the elders, that they, they're telling Jesus, look, here's one who recognizes the value of the descendants of Abraham. And so the promise of the Lord, I will bless. Here's here's why this is a, a good candidate. So sure, this is probably not the way that we would pray for ourselves. But I mean, I think about the people that I commend to the Lord in prayer, like, Lord, please keep your promise that you've made to this person. Yeah, I mean, so in that sense, not a, not a works righteousness sense, but in imploring the Lord, please keep your promise that, that you've made in, in the prayer. And, and they're highlighting the contrast of this particular centurion to what many others in his own, in his same role in different places would have been like. You know, he is an exceptional person. It's the exception, not the rule that a centurion would do these types of things for, for the Jewish community in his midst. You know, what, what strikes me, and I think this is the point to, to bring this out, is the, the centurion almost seems like he contrasts with what Jesus has spoken in the Sermon on the Plain 
in, in the Beatitudes that Jesus gave in Luke 6, beginning at verse 20, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Well, that's not the centurion, mm. at least not in a physical sense. Right. And then blessed are you when people hate you <laughs> and when they exclude you and revile you, as opposed to the, the opposite, woe, woe to you when all people speak well of you. And it, it, that was, it was this, this line here from the elders, they're speaking well of the centurion. And yet we're going to see how this one, the centurion, who is presumably physically rich and who has people speaking well of him, he finds himself among the blessed ones of Jesus because of his faith. And I, I so my just uh, reading through Luke's gospel like this on Sharper Iron, put, putting these things side by side, it's, it's a reminder that the Beatitudes and woes there in Luke 6 aren't just a mechanical sort of thing, but really do go into the, the faith that's in the heart. And I think we see the centurion as an example of someone who does have people speaking well of him and who is apparently rich, and yet he's a blessed one of Jesus because of his faith. That's true. Um, but in the same way that um, the Jewish elders are bringing their request on behalf of the centurion, the centurion is bringing his request on behalf of the servant. So we have to remember the miracle is for the sake of the servant rather than the centurion. He doesn't, he doesn't need him restored so that he can go back to work for him. Um, he's, he's bringing essentially a, a request for someone lower than him. So while the centurion isn't poor, um, the, the dying servant certainly is. Sure, sure. But it, but at the end, it is the centurion's faith that is commended. And that's, I guess, mm-hmm. it's right. just, there seems like a, it's just a reminder to me as to how to take the, the sermon on the plane and those beatitudes of Jesus, not in just sort of, and we talked about this when we went through that text, to be poor in that sense isn't just to have a certain, not over a certain level in your bank account, but to be you know poor in spirit, as Jesus says in Matthew. And you do see the example of the poverty of the centurion who knows that he needs to be filled by Jesus and and for his mm-hmm. servant's sake as well. Right, yeah, and his poverty of, of spirit is is shown in the fact that he goes through an intermediary to speak to Christ. Sure. Okay, so that's yeah. let, let's keep going then because what what happens here, the centurion has sent these people to Jesus to intercede on his behalf for the sake of the servant, and Jesus agrees. He goes with them. But before Jesus gets to the centurion's house, here come well these are these are called friends, so some more people are coming and they have more words for the centurion. What what's going on? Why doesn't why doesn't Jesus end up all the way at the centurion's house? Yeah, well, I guess you know. First off, the elders of the Jews are presumably walking back to the sure. centurion's house with Jesus, and now the centurion can't send them because they're already with Christ. And but he doesn't want to approach Christ himself. He doesn't even want Christ to come into his household because he doesn't feel worthy of that. So he sends his friend. These may be um, other Gentile members of his household, but they come out and they speak in the voice of the centurion relaying their message to him. Um, and the words there, of course, are, are these. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what we see there is, the words that he is relaying through these friends focus on his trust in Christ, but not just his trust in Christ generally, as many others had exhibited, but he takes it one step further and he trusts in the power of Christ's spoken word, not feeling as if he even needs to be in the physical presence of Christ for the miracle to be affected. 
Well, and you get a, I mean, there's there's a couple of things here that is going on. You know, first, he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy, which is a, a direct I don't know, contradiction, but it's the opposite of what the elders came and said. They started, yeah. he is worthy, and he says, no, no. I'm not worthy. <laughs> so I mean, you know, you you get that that faith of the centurion already. But yeah, so it is the the power of Jesus' word. How does it's it, almost like the the centurion tells a a parable of sorts. He gives a, an mm-hmm. example from his own life about his commands to soldiers. How does how does that apply to what he's expecting or asking Jesus to do? Yeah. So he is saying because of his position as a Roman centurion, his words carry weight. When he says it. Uh, it affects some kind of an action. Um, and this is, of course, just military orders that, that take place. But he's also saying he's understanding the authority that Jesus himself has and therefore understands that his words also carry a weight that affects a change. Um, and he, he understands that just by the mere power of speaking that the Lord can effectuate these things, um, which gets him really close to understanding Christ as divine, I would say, um, probably closer than many other in Luke up to this point. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting. We talked about at the beginning Capernaum being this place where Jesus is being received up to this point. And the last time Jesus was in Capernaum at the end of Luke chapter 4, he was teaching there on the Sabbath, and the people who were gathered in the synagogue were astonished at his teaching because the word possessed authority. I mean, you think about the things that Jesus has done there in Capernaum already. It seems that the centurion, you know, we were talking about what what has he experienced? I'm just, and maybe this is filling in the gaps too much, but it, it's not hard to imagine this centurion having talked to those people who were there in the synagogue on that Sabbath day, who heard Jesus teach, who saw him cast out this demon by his word, the centurion heard that report, and he's connecting these dots such that he makes this, I think I can say, confession of faith concerning Jesus here in Luke chapter 7. He recognizes, boy, if my word has authority, here's a guy whose word really has authority. And that's one of the, I think, the big points here in this this section, if not all of Luke's gospel. Absolutely, yeah. And the elders of the Jews certainly would have been those those very eyewitnesses at that time in the synagogue. And that connection is is certainly there. So it is. It's a it's a great confession of faith. Most definitely. We'll pick up more of that <clears throat> confession of faith and more about the centurion on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke chapter seven with Pastor Nate Hill. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, February 4th. We're studying Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were talking about the centurion who recognizes the power of Jesus' word. 
And Jesus has quite the commendation for him. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What is it about the centurion's faith that stands out so much to Jesus? I think the thing that Christ is commending specifically here is the basis upon which he he understood that he didn't have to be in the physical presence of Christ for his word to work. Um, and that's an important thing for us to think about, too, who don't have the benefit of being in the physical face-to-face presence of Christ as many in his his ministry had the opportunity to do. So uh, he is he's speaking of the fact that, you know, ironically speaking, the greatest faith is found here in the one who's outside of the community. And that was a theme earlier, also in chapter uh, four, earlier on, where he spoke um, about how in his own ta- home, hometown they're not understanding who he is and, and alludes back to Elijah's ministry uh, and the, the healings that took place outside of Israel. Sure. I mean, and, and even, too, just thinking through the controversies Jesus has already had with the Pharisees here in Luke and the very first one where Jesus speaks, your sins are forgiven, and they're thinking, oh, he's he's blaspheming God. And then you know he says, well, let me— sh- speak this other word and it happens here you've got a gentile who's recognized from what he's heard that yeah this guy's word does have power it does have authority and he can do something even for me a gentile even when he's not in my house what what an amazing faith now you you mentioned that this is important for us because we don't see jesus face to face and i appreciate the way you you said that because i i think you were being careful there on purpose jesus isn't face-to-face present with us, but there is a physical presence of Jesus among us in the sacrament. I think, I think you were being very careful there. I appreciate that. But, but how, I mean, how does this help us who don't see Jesus face-to-face, what, what we see here from the power of Jesus' word? Right. I, you, we don't underplay the sacrament in any, any way. Um, what's the hymn uh, here? Lord, I see you face-to-face, right? So, so it's, it's true in that sacramental presence that Christ is truly there and, it, it, and we're close to him and near to him in that but what we, the way we encounter the Lord besides through his sacramental presence is through his word. And in his word, we are in the position that the centurion is. We, we must trust his word, the promises that it gives, to be effective even without that, that embodied, incarnate presence in that sense. I know what you mean. Yeah. He's, Jesus is not, like, you and I are sitting across a desk from each other right now. That's not how we encounter Jesus. But he's still there, and he's still doing what he says with his word, even though it's not that face-to-face presence. And his word is just as powerful, just as valid as if he were speaking it to us himself. So, And, of course, there's an application to this in, in the absolution, right? That uh, the absolution spoken over a penitent sinner by a pastor is just as valid as if Christ our Lord spoke those words to us himself. Right. But that takes faith. That's a, it's a hard thing to, to grasp and something that those without faith can't possibly understand. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, that's a wonderful example of faith from the centurion. And so we see the power of Jesus' word, but let's talk a little bit more about that, the example of the centurion's faith. What, what, what should we learn for our own Christian faith from the centurion and what we see here? So, so our faith ought to be focused like the centurions on the power and authority of Christ. The reason that he was sent to us is where we ought to focus our faith. And our faith is always Christological as Christians. Um, it's not an unanchored faith. It's not just a feeling of hope and optimism. It's faith that grasps onto Christ and his promises and his word. Uh, it's faith that looks at the miraculous healings in the scriptures and regards them to be 
truth rather than myth or fable. It's a faith that um, looks at the teachings of Christ and receives them with joy in our hearts, seeking to incorporate them into our daily life. But ultimately, it's a faith that rests upon his promise of forgiveness, uh, pardon for sin, and eternal life. So um, that's that's what we ought to be looking for as we emulate that faith. Sure, and I think, too, the centurion's attitude concerning himself. He he says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The, the humility of the centurion, despite his earthly power and potentially earthly riches, he recognizes his unworthiness before Jesus. And, and so, you, I mean, you have that humility in prayer, and yet a very bold prayer. Let my servant be healed just by speaking the word. I'm reminded of the prayer of the leper who approached Jesus earlier in Luke's gospel. You know, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean, mm-hmm. right? And I think you see a similar faith from the centurion regarding himself. He knows who he is, his own humility, and yet there's this boldness and prayer that he offers to Jesus. Right, and, um, you know, earlier we were talking about the words that the uh, elders of the Jews say to commend him, and, you know, we didn't disagree with their assessment of him, right? On an outward level, he appeared to be a, an generally righteous and upright man, well-disposed. But what the centurion knows that the rest of the community doesn't are his own secret sins, his own disposition of his heart. So, I mean, in the same way, um, we can speak well of others and and speak about uh, their good positive example, Yet, um, and we can receive, I suppose, the words that others say about us in a similar vein, but we always know as we approach Christ that which not everybody else sees you know, our, our own sin and shame. And we always go to him personally with humility um, and never the attitude that I deserve to have a hearing with you, but rather that I'm thankful that I've been granted uh, the opportunity to speak to you in prayer, the opportunity to hear your word, even though I'm completely unworthy of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the centurion's prayer is one that we can, perhaps not with the precise words, because his are situated to that servant being healed. And yet I, I think that his prayer is one that we can pick up for ourselves. You know, I'm I'm not worthy for you to come to me, Jesus. And yet, please do speak your word and I will be healed. I mean, I think it's a very appropriate prayer for us to use, not only for ourselves, but also for others. Yeah. And you mentioned his prayer, right? Um, yeah. yeah. So this is another point that, I mean, hit me more fully recently, which I should have realized decades ago. Every time we have a interaction in the gospel text between an individual and Christ, um, a conversation or anything, uh, a request or uh, in any of that type of one-on-one interaction, it's able to be analogized into our own approach to Christ in prayer. So we should be looking for those types of lessons there. What was his attitude of heart as he approached Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry? Uh, if that's a good thing, how do I emulate that in my attitude towards Christ, recognizing it's a little bit different because it's it's one that takes place through prayer and the hearing of God's word, but the attitude of heart ought to be what we apply. And, and not to lose sight of the fact, as you've mentioned several times, he is praying to the Lord here, not for himself, but on behalf of others. So intercessory prayer would be another thing that's commended in this text. Yeah, so <clears throat> you'll, you'll notice that we never hear a word from the servant. We don't even know if the servant was well enough to ask the centurion for help. So God is always well disposed to our prayers. But here's a picture of of the compassion that Christ pours out even when you're bringing a request on behalf of of someone else. That's why we ought to be willing 
to pray for others and why we ought to be willing to have others pray for us rather than kind of this uh, prideful secrecy, I think, that some of us have from time to time. Um, you know, uh, if I were sick, I think my first reaction would be, well, don't put me on the prayer list. Um, (laughs) and of course, sometimes those things can, uh, create a little bit of a curiosity amongst people, but we ought to be quick to desire the prayers of others on our behalf and to offer prayers on behalf of others. Sure. Yeah. And I, I've, I've encountered that too. And probably I know I've thought that too. Well, no, 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 you don't need to pray for me. Well, yeah, you, you do need to pray for me because I'm not going to heal myself. <laughs> you, you, right. you better pray for me. Please bring me before the Lord and and let Him be the one to answer those prayers. I I understand the the thought of humility that it's coming from, but I I think a, even more a true humility would be yes. Please do pray for me because I am in need and I need the Lord's help. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And the, and we shouldn't neglect to notice that in verse ten, when everybody gets back to the house. The servant as well. Jesus' word has proved effective. And following along in Luke's gospel, this should not be a surprise to us. Jesus' word has proved authoritative to do what he says over and over and over again. It's true in the first part of the text, and it's going to be true in the second part of the text that we've got today. So we're picking up again here in Luke 7, now at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. So, Pastor Hill, we we find ourselves in a new town in this text, Nain. Give us just a little bit of geography. Where are we here? So, Nain is a small village. It's southwest of Capernaum, so not on the Sea of Galilee any any longer, but in the region of of Galilee and a a similar setting, but a a less significant and less metropolitan type of of location. All right. So, smaller town, Nain, still in the northern region of of Israel, Galilee. Set the scene for us, because it really is quite the dramatic scene when you when you picture this in your mind. What what's happening there in Nain? What's Jesus seeing? Right. So, uh, this is actually the first time that Jesus in Luke comes face to face with death. There, there's no other recorded instance in Luke of of Jesus seeing uh, someone die or being present with someone who had died. Um, what we see is a great crowd of mourners that are in a funeral procession in that day. Um, you have people bearing uh, the, the beer, the B-I-E-R um, there, which I've never heard that word anywhere else. <laughs> but I, my understanding is essentially that platform upon which you're carrying the body. I think so, you, yeah. You bear it on the beer, I think. Um, and funeral processions in these days were loud uh, experiences of... Um, morning that was on full display. And this is probably especially true given the situation of the mother of the man who's died. We know that she was a widow, so no husband, and now her only son has passed away. She's in a situation where you're mourning for her, not just because she misses her son, but because you know the implications of what that means for her in society. 
Uh, very likely she's going to have, looking before her, a life of economic destitution uh, and reliance upon others, perhaps through through alms and, and gifts that they might be able to give. So, uh, and this is true anytime you see people mourning. You you almost mourn on behalf of those who mourn. You know, you I, as pastors, you know, I don't know that we always get choked up at funerals because we understand the reality of life and death and the hope that we have. But the times I do, it's when I get choked up by the reaction of those who are closest to the one who's who's passed away. So Jesus sees this. Um, it's the first time he's seen it in Luke, and the reaction he has is to have compassion upon her. Um, and there's a Greek word that I'm not going to attempt to to say today, but it basically translates his gut moved, right? You can probably say it. Don't you remember it? Splonknidzomai. Splonknidzomai. Yeah, I believe our, right. our President Harrison, I believe he loves this word. Yeah, yeah. It just, it just, it's very it is guttural. It's a fantastic word. It's, uh, Almost onomatopoeic. That's in right. Its, in its yeah, sound, it's, right? it's the the way that I've heard it described. You know, if you if when you gut a deer after you've been hunting, uh, if you've been hunting, the sound that all the guts make when it hits the floor. Yeah, that's that it. Sound. Yeah. yeah. So that's the word Jesus gut, and and perhaps we have a we have a phrase in English that is akin to this. Yeah, you, know, you say my heart goes out to you. It's it's yeah. that same mm-hmm. kind of idea, but maybe less visceral in English as it is here. <laughs> exactly. So, okay, Jesus is having compassion. Before we before we get there, I just it struck me one time when I was preaching on this text that if you if you picture this in your mind, you know, you've got these two opposing crowds that are coming together. You've got Jesus leading the one crowd who's coming into Nain, and then you've got a dead man who's leading the other crowd coming out of Nain, and it's it's I I find it a very dramatic scene. As you said, this is the first time Jesus had come face-to-face with death. Uh, we've seen him do all kinds of other things. What's going to happen when he meets death? I mean, death is coming at him. He's coming at death. Who's going to win this battle? I think it's a very, very dramatic scene. He starts with compassion. Where, do, where does he go next? Right. So he, he has compassion, um, and he speaks directly to the mother. He walks up to her and says, do not weep. Now, in those words, you know, there's a lot in those words, right? Do not weep because Christ knows what's about to happen. Um, do not weep, um, you know, because of the reality of what he knows he's going to accomplish in the end for humanity. But he simply tells her, do not weep. Um, and then he comes up and touches the beer. And the bearers stood still, it says, you know, almost just captured almost by the uh, holy fear, it sounds. And he says the phrase, young man, I say to you, arise. And by the power of his word, the man sets up and, and speaks. Um, it reminds me of um, uh, Talitha Kumi, right? Sure. Little girl, I say to you, arise here with just a different individual that's being being raised by the power of his word. Sure. I mean, so we talked about the power of his word previously. And here, you know, just again, picturing the scene in your mind, he stopped this funeral possession by touching the beer, which is a significant event, I mean, we think about what Jesus has touched previously. He touched a leper, which would have been an unclean thing to do. Here's another example of Jesus touching something that's unclean. And then he, I mean, he, he's talking to the young man who's dead. I mean, you talk about the power of someone's word. Dead people aren't supposed to hear anything. But Jesus talks to him, and by the power of the word, the ears are open, the life is restored, he lives. Yeah, and you got to be Jesus to do that. That's right. <laughs> I've seen this at a funeral. Actually, it was not a not not in our own church body, um, but I've I've seen a preacher knock upon a, a corpse's or a, a, a 
a casket as if he were knocking on the door and speaking to the individual inside. That doesn't work if you can't uh, can't uh, do what Christ does on the other side. So let's let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that. That's a good example of what not to do at funerals 101. Yes. So, but with the words of Jesus, you know, do not weep. And then what happens here? I mean, how how does a text like this? How do we use this as Christians to comfort those who have who have died or who have loved ones who have died in Christ? How how does a text like this? Because you know, do not weep, boy, Jesus. That sounds really really inconsiderate. You're not being very compassionate by saying those words. You know, imagine telling that to a a woman whose husband has already died. Here's her only son. You shouldn't cry. That that could sound really mean. I mean, how do we take what Jesus does here to death? in the face of death, and use it to comfort others who have lost loved ones in Christ. Yeah, so he's not saying do not weep because weeping is a lack of faith, I think is one thing that we should definitely say. He sees her weeping. That's the appropriate response in this situation. He says um, do not weep because of what he's about to do. Do not weep. Watch this. Watch what I'm about to do for you. I'm going to raise to life your son again and I'm going to restore the relationship that was torn apart by death. You know, we talk about sin separates us from God. Sin breaks relationships. And, and ultimately, death breaks every human relationship that we hold so dear in this life, right? Everyone thinks, you know, your life is going along swimmingly, nothing's wrong. And then death knocks on the door, and it breaks a relationship that, that you had once just put so much stock and love and care into. So he says, do not weep because he restores that relationship by defeating death in this case. Now, should we expect a physical resurrection in the immediate temporal sense of our dead loved ones? No, um, we, but we do have the promise of the resurrection that is to come. Um, and we can, without being idolatrous about it, look forward to the day when those relationships that were broken will be restored in the resurrection. Um, you know, we don't want to dwell on that so much that our, our loved ones were reunited with takes center stage. The, the most important thing is, is being in the presence of Christ. But that added blessing is still there of the restoration of those. Okay, so the, the, the proper use of this text isn't to go up to the casket at a visitation or a funeral and say, get up right then and there. Because that's not your authority nor mine to speak. Those words belong to Christ. But But an appropriate use of this text would be, to point our loved ones who've, who've, who are mourning the death of those who've died in Christ to that coming of Christ when he will say these words again to each individual, get up from your grave. Mm-hmm. And, and man, I, I know I, I've always, especially after, after several funerals, I, I kind of hope that the return of Christ happens, and I'm sure it will, where someone's going to have died. There's going to be some funeral proce- procession that's stopped. Oh yeah! By yeah. the return of uh-huh. Christ, somewhere around the world, when Christ returns, surely there will be a funeral procession that will be stopped, and this will be made true for that very funeral procession, and then for everyone. So that yeah. the the hope that we have from this, as you said very well, isn't the the restoration of physical life here and now in this world. We don't have that promise. And this young man, for as great a miracle as this was, he died again later and is now awaiting the resurrection. The hope that we have from this text is that final coming of Christ when he speaks these words to all of us and we do get up from our graves. And that is what I think this, you know, if I can pull from Paul here, that we do mourn, but we mourn with hope. And that's where our weeping still, we still weep, but we do so with hope. Absolutely. You know, we do so knowing that the resurrection that doesn't result in a death ever again 
has the final word. Um, and that's really the only, only hope, you know? I mean, it's <laughs> all other things that people, people will say to try and comfort you. Um, uh, God has a reason. He's in a better place. Um, God must have had a greater purpose. You know, God's given you some lemons, but he's going to make lemonade out of it. None of that, none of that holds up. God must have needed him more, you know, none of that holds up if you don't have underlying that the a, a sure and certain hope in in the resurrection as promised in the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's where this text really is such a powerful one because Jesus does meet death head on, this this greatest enemy. I mean, you think about what he's done so far, even just the healing of the centurion servant. Why was the healing needed? Because if the healing didn't come, death is there. I mean, death is, you know, it's standing behind all these things, even with his power over the demons. And here he is, and he he conquers it. Uh, I mean, what a beautiful promise. Yeah, your image of, you know, I hadn't thought of it in this way, of the processionals coming together for a head-on collision. The question is, who's got the right of way? That's right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who's got to give way and who has the right of way? And clearly, Christ has the right of way in the face of death, and yeah. death gives way to him. Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, you and I both serve in, in small-town rural areas where folks still mostly give the right of way to a funeral procession. Yeah. When you're driving to the cemetery, people still pull off on the side of the road. I don't know that it hap- that happens in big cities, but it does here. One day, <laughs> Christ is going to come yet again and take that right of way a- away forever, and-, and death will be completely undone. And that, I mean, yeah, as you said, that's really the only hope that we have that we always have to be looking forward to. Well, and that's why I think some people are skeptical of Christianity because they don't understand the hope of the resurrection of the flesh as the the ultimate hope of Christianity. Honestly, some Christians don't understand that. Many Christians don't fully realize it or, or appreciate it. You know, people think, oh, I know what Christianity is about. It's about being nice to others and maybe forgiveness and maybe when you die, you float around like an angel. And, but But they don't understand that it speaks to the deepest fear that every human has, which is what happens to me when I die? If they understood that it answers that question, um, it might be something that people take a little bit more seriously. Yeah, yeah, something, something for all of us to to chew on, and and certainly put our faith in Christ as the one who conquers death. Let's talk a little bit about the reaction that that happens here in Nain. Luke notes that there's fear, and then the people have a couple things to speak about God. They they recognize Jesus as a great prophet, and that God has visited His people. What do those two reactions mean? Yeah, so the question is, you know, what do they understand about Jesus at this point? Um, they understand he is more than a Galilean carpenter. They understand he is more than a rabbi. They understand he is sent from God somehow. They understand he's doing miracles. And they, they say not only that a prophet has risen among us, but a great prophet so he is, at least in their estimation, in the, the ranks of, of Elijah. Um, and the question is, do they, do they understand anything more about him beyond that? I tend to think they, they're, they're toying with the idea, right? God has visited his people. Does that mean that God has sent a prophet to come down to us? And isn't that nice of God to have sent this guy? Or are they beginning to, to believe that perhaps I've just seen divinity on display with my very own eyes? Yeah, it's and again, that's one of those things where it's hard to know precisely what the people are thinking, but you do have their words. And I, by recording those words, I think St. Luke is inviting us to recognize the truth about Jesus, that yes, God has visited his, his people. For us reading this text right now, we should recognize that means 
God's right there in the flesh doing something for his people. And then, of course, this this report spreads throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So I also think just, you know, the, you mentioned at the very beginning of our talk that we were talking about Jesus's prophet, right? And so the fact that he's recognized as a prophet, okay, they're recognizing that something big's happening, but there's also that foreshadowing maybe within the narrative that remember what happens to the faithful prophets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that that will happen to Jesus as well. Got about two minutes here on the morning, Pastor Hill. Help us with summarizing final thoughts on the text. Point us to the good news. Ultimately, the two miracles that we see today um, show us the the fullness of, of Christ's glory. Um, we see a crescendo, really, in his ministry that gives... Um, that starts in a way that uh, that the understanding of, of who he is begins to unfold in the minds of, of the people, especially in Galilee. In Galilee, really everywhere except for Nazareth, where he wasn't welcome in his hometown. Um, and this text here at the end of chapter 7 crescendos in his power over death itself, which foreshadows, of course, his own resurrection that we'll hear um, at the end of, of the gospel. Um He's the one who once and for all can reverse the curse of sin and death. And he's the one who uh, can someday, not too far in the future, face death himself and not just stand on the outside of death and by the power of his word raise someone else from it, but walk through that valley of the shadow of death into, into a dark and, a dark and uh, cold tomb and emerge forth in glorious light on the day of the resurrection. So um, he, is, he is foreshadowing in these miracles, the power that he has and the ultimate path that he will take in his ministry. And and in that, we have hope for our resurrection on the last day in Christ. Pastor Nate Hill is pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us today with Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 7 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.